Hello, and welcome back to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. My name is Brian, and I pastor that location. It's good to talk to you again. Let me ask you a question. What does God look like? What is God really like? It's a question people have asked since people started asking questions. And in this sermon, we talk about how we can know for sure exactly what God looks like. This sermon is preached by Rick Piccarello, Mount Hope's senior pastor and Burlington location pastor. I know you're going to enjoy it, so I hope you listen closely, because I believe that God has something he would like to say to you. There was a kindergarten teacher <clears throat> one day who was, uh, had given her class the assignment of drawing some pictures. And so as good teachers will do, she's walking around the class and commenting on drawings and pictures. And she comes to one little girl. She can't quite tell what it is. And so she asked her, you know, what is it you're drawing? And the little girl says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And uh, the teacher kind of smirked a little and said, oh, sweetie, nobody knows what God looks like. And uh, the little kid, a little, without missing a beat, continues drawing. And she says, they will in a minute. What does God look like? Uh, you know, it's a question. What is God like? What does God look like? It's a question that people have been asking uh, probably as long as people have been asking questions. <laughs> and people have had ideas for as long as time has been on what God is like. Uh, there are some people that will uh, take a carved uh, piece of wood or stone throughout history and think that that is God or that is what God is like. Uh, there are others, maybe you can remember back to your uh, Greek mythology or your Roman mythology, the idea that gods are kind of like us. Uh, they fight and have feelings and they're kind of like people, only they have some superpowers and once in a while will come down and disturb things on earth and, and mess things up a little bit. And, and uh, that's what gods are like. There are others who believe that God is kind of like a force, uh, maybe a Taoist chi kind of thing or, uh, you know, a Jedi force kind of moving through the universe, kind of holding all things together. Uh, there are all kinds of ideas of what God is like. Many people think that God is all around us. Some think that God is in everyone. He's in you. He's in me. Uh, he's in everywhere. People who think that God is a friend, others who think that God's a judge, some who think he's really close, others who think he's really far. What is God like? How do we find out what God is like? The truth is we can maybe make some guesses about what God is like. We can kind of look around us at things we see and kind of like uh, with the dinosaurs, uh, look at what's been left behind and make some assumptions of what God is like. And we do that with the dinosaurs, right? We never have seen a dinosaur despite the latest iteration of Jurassic Park. We've never, you know, seen a dinosaur, but we look at what's left behind and we think we make some guesses of what they must have been like. But the truth is, even though we think we know some things, there's a lot of things we don't know. Uh, this was uh, kind of made known to me recently. I was listening to an uh, NPR Science Friday, and there was a paleo artist on there. And yes, I guess there are paleo artists. And so he's a guy that draws dinosaurs. And he was, he thought he made, I thought he made a good point. He was saying, you know, a lot of times 
when we see dinosaurs drawn in like textbooks and things, what they are is just a skin stretched over a skeleton. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of true. That's, that's what it's often depicted as to me. I've been down to the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., and you see these big skeletons of dinosaurs. And then when you see a picture of them, you just basically see a skin stretched over that skeleton. And he said, well, no other animal you look at is like that. So you look at a bear, it doesn't look like there's a skin stretched over a skeleton. There's fatty tissue covering organs. There's muscles. There's tendons. So they might have looked very different than we often see them depicted. Some of the ones that we think were just skin might have had feathers. Some of the ones that we think were bland and gray, maybe they were purple. Who knows? We don't know. All kinds of things that could have been different. Things we know, things we think we know, and uh, then some things we can't know. It's like that with dinosaurs, and it's like that with people, too. You know, you can look at me, or I can look at you, and there's some things you can know about me. Uh, You can look at me, and you can certainly know my height, and color of my eyes, and skin, and And maybe you can guess an ethnicity, or maybe you can listen to the way I talk and guess where I'm from, and some things you can know. But then there's things that I can't know about you, or I only can think I know. You can look at me and think, well, he likes the color black because he's, he's got a black shirt on. Or he shops at a certain store because he's wearing a certain brand. But The truth is, maybe I'm only wearing a black shirt because I was too lazy to do laundry this week, and this is all I had that was clean. Or maybe I'm only wearing a certain brand because I like free stuff and people gave me clothes to wear. Some things we know, but some things we only think we know. And then some things we can't know unless they're told to us, unless they're revealed to us. I can't know your hopes, your dreams, I don't know whether you like clam chowder or sprinkles on your ice cream. I don't know those things about you unless you tell me them, unless they're revealed to me. It's like that about dinosaurs. It's like that about people. But it's like that about God, too. The truth is, when we come to God, there are some things we can look around us and we can know. We can look at what God has left behind. We can think we know some things. We look at the mountains and the streams, the galaxies and the stars, and we think, well, God is a creator, and he's creative. And he must be big and powerful to have created all of these things that we see. And he must be creative to create them in such beautiful colors and ideas and things. And so God must be big and powerful and a creator. We can look at how things work together, and we think, well, God must be uh, able to hold things together in such a way that there's an organized nature to them. I mean, things don't just scatter around sporadically. I mean, haphazardly, there's, there's an organized nature to what's going on, and something, God must be able to hold that together. Look at the complexity of the human eye, or the way that mathematical sequences appear again and again in nature, and you look, God must be precise. I can look at what's left behind. I can look at life and say, well, God must have life in him, because it's not all just rocks and asteroids must be some life. I can look and say, well, God must have some kind of moral aspect to him because 
there's this idea of right and wrong and fairness and unfairness that we all have. And, and so God must have some kind of moral aspect to him. All these things I can look at kind of like looking at dinosaur bones, and I can say that this must be what God is like. But then there are things that maybe we only think we know. I can look around also, and you can look around, and you can see pain in the world. And what of that? Some might say, well, God is apathetic. God is aloof to the pain in the world. Others might say, well, God is uncaring. Others might say, well, he's caring, but he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. The truth is, we're just making guesses unless God himself will tell us differently, will reveal himself to us. There are some things we can know, some things we can think we know, and some things we can't know unless God reveals them to us. It's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. And so this book... This Bible that we have is really, in many ways, an account of God revealing himself to people. It's really an account of the fact that God's presence and God's revelation to people can only be known to a certain extent if he chooses to tell us. It's been this way since the beginning. It's been this way since the beginning when God created And in the beginning when God created, he created humanity. And in his creation of humanity, he started with two people, Adam and Eve. And in his creation of Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us that when he first started creating, he put them in a garden. And in this garden... He placed these people, these two people, and it says in the Bible that he would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. We don't know quite entirely what that looked like, um, but the Bible says that God walked with him. Was that the spirit of God? Was that God appearing in some corporeal way? We're not quite sure, but it says God walked with them. And it's Partly because of this idea that you can't know anything about God unless he will reveal it. So the story of God is the story of God's presence being revealed to God's people throughout time. Then sin entered in. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. And so they left the garden, and we no longer have this account of God walking with them in the cool of the evening like we had Uh, before that. And so we have later, God starts revealing himself in other ways. He doesn't stop revealing himself. We continue to have the presence of God being shown. He identifies a man named Abram. And the Bible says he speaks to him. So God revealing himself once again. And he speaks to Abram and he tells him to go to a place that he hasn't known. And God starts revealing himself through Abram. And he tells him that he is going to use Abram, changes his name to Abraham, who you may be more familiar with that name. He tells him he's going to use Abraham to reveal to the whole world who he is. Essentially, that's his plan. He's going to use Abraham and his family to show the entire world who he is. 
and he's going to use him. So he meets with Abraham and talks with Abraham, and Abraham hears from God, and he speaks to him. But that's not where it ends. There's other people throughout Scripture. He later appears in a burning bush to a man named Moses, and he speaks to him, and he talks with him. And then he goes beyond that with Moses. He meets him on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And on that mountain, he speaks to Moses like he spoke to no one else before. He appears to him. He gives him the, what we know as the Ten Commandments, but we're really the covenant, the agreement between God and his people. And he reveals this to Moses on the mountain. He's God's presence being revealed. We would know nothing about God unless he told us himself. And so God gives these Ten Commandments. This is as the creator, how I created the world to work. And if you will be my people and you will live this way and I will be your God, it will go well with you. And so he meets with Moses and reveals himself. But he also reveals to Moses something else. He tells Moses to build something. He tells Moses to build a tabernacle. And he said, in that tabernacle... There'll be a couple of rooms. One room in the tabernacle we'll call the holy place. In the holy place, that's where the priests will be. And the priests will be in the holy place, and they'll offer prayers there. They'll offer worship there. uh, They'll offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But then in the tabernacle, build a separate room, second room. And this room will be the most holy place. It's a small, square room. And this room will be the most holy place. And in that room, you're only going to put one object. You're going to put one box. We'll call that object. It's going to be the Ark of the Covenant because the covenant that God gave to Moses is going to go right inside that beautiful gold box. And so he's put that one box, the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of that box covered in gold, build a seat. We call it the mercy seat in a sense, uh, called the mercy seat. It's a seat in a sense, but it's going to be two cherubim that are on top of it. And and, and those cherubim are going to be in such a way that they're going to be facing each other and and their their wings are almost going to be touching. And this is going to be on top of the box. And when you put that box in that most holy place, I will command my presence to be there. The story of the Bible is a story of God's presence being revealed to humanity, constantly revealing himself. And so Moses does that, and he builds the tabernacle, and God's presence does dwell there with his people. And then later on, God leads his people to a different place, to a city. And when he leads them to this city, he tells them not to build the tabernacle because that was temporary. That would move around when they were walking around. But now he tells them to build a temple, a more permanent place in the city of Jerusalem. And the temple will be similar, very similar, to the design of the tabernacle. It'll have two rooms. One will be the holy place and one will be the most holy place. And in that most holy place will be the Ark of the Covenant. And in that spot at the Ark of the Covenant, on top of it, my presence will dwell and be with the people. And God was constantly telling the story 
and revealing himself to people. He did it through the temple. He did it through the tabernacle. And then he would send his prophets. And his prophets would speak on behalf of the people, on behalf of God to the people. And he would reveal himself that way. And so God continued to reveal himself to people. And then eventually we come to a place in the Bible called the Gospels. And we come to first, we come to one of the Gospels, John. And John wrote an account of Jesus' life, which essentially is what the Gospels are. They're an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John was one of his followers, and he wrote one of those accounts about Jesus. And we're going to be looking at that over the next several weeks, several months here at Mount Hope. And as we do, we're going to learn a bit about who this God is. But John starts his gospel out in a very particular way. And so let's listen to what John says about who Jesus is in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is a very particular word. It has an image that goes along with it. And the image is tabernacle. That the word became flesh, tabernacled. The word for tabernacle is essentially a tent. That the word became flesh and tabernacled among humanity. Or God came and pitched his tent among people. God came and pitched his tent among the people who lived on earth. I don't know what happened. God didn't like what I said there or someone else didn't like what I had to say there. We're good. You can hear me and see me well enough? We're good. Um, God came and dwelt among his people. This is the message of John 
John says the word. And when he says the word, he's talking about Jesus. And the point that he makes at the very beginning of his account of Jesus's life is this. Jesus is God. He makes it very clearly in these verses here because he talks about the things that we would talk about that you'd expect to see in God. Well, God would have to be all-powerful and God would have to exist and God would have to, he says, in the beginning was the Word. There was no was before the Word. He's been there from the start. He was always there. And this Word is Jesus. And if he's going to be God, then He has to be all-powerful. And he says, for Jesus, all things, he does say Jesus is the light of the world too, so we're getting there. (laughs) For Jesus, all things were made through him. So he's all-powerful. All things were made through him. And he calls him the word, which is also a very particular word that he uses because the Greek word there is logos. And the logos was not just a word, it was a concept in Greek philosophy and theology back from Aristotle and back in those times where the logos was something that would permeate, hold everything together. And he says, this is Jesus. He's this word that holds everything together. He's God. And he would have to be, we said God would have to have some moral aspect to him. And John says that he brings the light into the world. He brings light into darkness. He would have to have life in him. And he said, Jesus, the word, is life. And all life comes from him. And so at the very beginning of John's book, and we're going to be in this book over the next couple weeks and even over the next couple months, and we're going to be looking at what John says. And at the very beginning of his gospel, at the very beginning of his count, what he wants to make clear is what he's talking about, who he's talking about. He's going to give this account of this, this person, Jesus, but he wants to make very clear from the beginning that this Jesus that I'm talking about, let's get it, he's God. And so if you want to see what God looks like, then look at Jesus. And so many of us say, well, what does God look like? What does God act like? John's saying, well, you look at Jesus, because if you've seen Jesus, he is God, then you've seen God. And so when we talk about over the next several weeks and next several months what God is like, what Jesus did, know that that's what God is like. And so why is this significant? Real quick, three things, three reasons why this is significant. One reason it's significant because, as I mentioned, this is revelation. This is revelation of who God is. Many people would say, well, I don't know what God looks like. I don't know what God is. I don't know how God would handle this. Well, if you look at Jesus, you know what God looks like and acts like. You know what God is because that is, the, that is God who came down to earth to tabernacle to live among us. And so Jesus is God, and he gives us a picture of what God is like. So you don't have to be like the dinosaurs and just look at what was left behind. You can look at the account of Jesus' life and know what God is like. Sometimes people miss it, though. You say, well, if God came to earth, how come so many people missed it? How come so many people didn't see it? How come so many people didn't believe if God came to earth? The truth is, even though at times uh, there could be greatness in front of us, we can still miss it. Not everybody wants to see it. 
January 12, 2007, uh, a man named Joshua Bell took out his violin case in the Washington, D.C. metro station. And he was in a jeans and T-shirt and had a Washington Nationals ball cap on, opened up his violin case and threw a couple dollars in of seed money, started to play. And he played throughout the day, and he played Mozart, and he played Schubert, and thousands of people walked by, and some people, 27 people, uh, threw some money into his violin case. At the end of the day, he had $32 to show for it in his violin case. People had a little bit of knowledge and took enough time to look a little closer. They might have seen that Joshua Bell had pulled out of that violin case a Stradivarius violin that cost uh, over three, valued over $3 million. And if they knew a little bit about violinists and classical music, they might recognize Joshua as an extremely accomplished musician who three nights before had sold out Boston Symphony Hall and the tickets were, common tickets for that event would go at $100 a piece. But he was playing for free in the metro station at Washington, D.C., and people just shuffled by and maybe tossed a dollar or two in. And how could people miss something so great? It was all actually an experiment put on by the Washington Post. And the reason was this. Would people in a banal situation at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend that moment? Would people take note? And most people didn't. Most people just walked by, didn't even notice it didn't notice the beauty of the music or the beauty of the instrument that was right before them. It's interesting, right? A banal situation, an inconvenient time, a small, obscure Middle Eastern town in a small, obscure Middle Eastern country that's not even ruling itself. It's under an oppressive foreign power in a strange, banal place like a stable, in a manger that animals usually eat of. Would people at a banal place in an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend that moment? And you can see that it's not hard for us to miss revelation. It's not hard for us to miss truth. It's not hard for us to miss beauty when we're not looking for it. Yet the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is what John is saying, that you ask what God looks like, you ask what God is like, and John's about to give this account. God is, Jesus is God, and this is what God is like. But if you're not careful, you'll be like those walking through the subway station, you'll walk right by and you'll miss the beauty that God is trying to reveal to you in that moment and in that place. You'll miss what God is showing you. Revelation is one of the reasons this is significant, that God came. The second is separation. 
This idea that God came down to earth separates it from any other belief about God, separates Christianity from every other and any other belief about God that's out there. There's separation because every other religion and every other belief about God will say, you've got to try harder. You've got to figure out how to get to God. You've got to clean yourself up. You've got to you know, discover the path and you've got to figure out how to get to God. And what John is saying is, no, that's not what God is like. God does not demand and command you to ascend to him. He will descend to you. He is the God who came to this planet. He is the God who got his feet dusty. He is the God who got dirty. He's the God who's not afraid to come and live among you. And this separates him from every other belief and religion about God, that God would come down to become flesh, to to take on and walk among you and to sacrifice himself and lay down his life on your behalf. This is separation. And so it's important because many of us will say, God, I must need to try to get to God. I need to clean myself up to get to God. I need to, I need to act a certain way. And yet what John says is the word became flesh and dwelt among us, walked with us, walked among us. So revelation is significant that Jesus came to earth. It's revelation. It's separation but the final thing, the significance is it's an invitation. It's an invitation. The word became flesh is revelation and separation and invitation. Because the truth is that, yes, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And as one paraphrase puts it, Eugene Peterson in the message says, he moved into the neighborhood. And I like that expression. He came down and he moved into the neighborhood. And he comes down and he lives among us. But here's the truth. You don't know all your neighbors. I don't know all my neighbors. Proximity doesn't equal relationship. And just because Jesus moved into the neighborhood doesn't mean that you and I are going to have a relationship with him. So, God came and dwelt among us but the, and lived among us, but the question is, will you, even though he moved into the neighborhood, will you welcome him into your life? Because all of us at times have seen the story on the news where somebody says, oh, yeah, he seemed like such a nice guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, he lived next door and we saw him and we'd wave to him and, you know, I never saw this coming. Never thought he would have done this. Oh, no, you know, he seemed like such a normal, nice person. She seemed like that. We don't know our neighbors. A lot of times we don't know the people who are living right by us. Proximity doesn't equal relationship. So even though God came and dwelt among us, the question is, he moved into the neighborhood, but will you allow him to move into your life? Will you allow him to move into your heart? It's an invitation because this is what John says. John chapter 1 in verse 11. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born, who were born not of blood and nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So the significance of Jesus, God coming to earth, yes, it's revelation of what God is like. Yep, it's separation. It's different than any other religion. But ultimately, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to receive him. He moved into the neighborhood, but will you allow him into your life and into your heart? Because he doesn't force it. Because he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to all who would receive him, to all who believed in him, became children of God. And that's the message John starts with. That will you believe? Will you put your faith and your trust in him? And that's the question for us this morning. God moved into the neighborhood, but will you allow him to move into your heart? Will you believe in him? There was a, um, this past week, my, uh, our family watched a movie, and maybe you've seen it. Uh, it came out a while back. It's called uh, Wonder. And it's a fictional account, but... I think it's probably based on a number of true stories that have happened time and time again. Uh, it's a story of a, a boy named Augustus Pullman, or August Pullman, and uh, he goes by Augie. And Augie was born with a number of genetic complications and went through surgery after surgery after surgery that allowed him to live a somewhat, uh, quote-unquote, normal life and and be able to live and move and breathe, uh, you know, away from hospitals and surgery after surgery allowed him to, to have, uh, to go and live his life. But no matter how many surgeries they did, uh, there was still, when you looked at Augie, you could tell that there were complications in his life because they could not repair and fix and take away all the marks on his face. And uh, so it was obvious there was something different about Augie. And kids that'll be like kids are were often pretty cruel to him and would uh, make remarks and say things. And eventually, Augie was uh, left being homeschooled and entered a larger school, and it was middle school. And those of you that can remember middle school or maybe have kids or a middle school, it can be a tough time for kids. It's tough enough if, if everything looks normal about you. It's harder if you look like Augie. He would wear a space helmet around like he was an astronaut to kind of hide his face off. And he, he would wear that around because it would allow him, at least for a little while, to interact with people on, without them seeing his differences until he had to take it off. And it was tough. And you see him go through the relationships that he'd go through and kids being kids and saying the things they would say and pointing and sitting alone at lunch and all of that stuff. And then at one point at the end of the movie, near the end of the movie, Augie gets into a fight with some kids. And uh, 
And then some older kids who had, you know, been kind of coming along and seeing the error of their ways and seeing the, you know, that, the, the, the hope and the, the life that was in Augie came along and helped Augie in the fight. And they, and they beat these older kids and they ran away and they, and, and they were able to get away and they helped Augie. And there's this scene where they're kind of huffing and puffing after running away. Yeah, I think we lost them. They're smiling. They're laughing. And then one of the older middle schoolers puts up his hand and he high fives Augie. And Augie gives him a high five. And then he kind of walks away and he starts crying. And, uh, and you want you know, what is, he, what is he crying about? And he's crying. He's crying because it was one of the first times in his life that someone initiated touch with him that was outside of his family. That someone would, because the touch him because all the other kids would say, I don't touch Augie, you'll get the plague. You know, you don't want to touch Augie. You'll you get the plague if you touch Augie. But then this one kid puts his hand up and he high fives him. And it hits him in an emotional place because somebody initiated touch. And isn't that what we all want? And isn't that what God did? when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came and he touched this place covered in dirty, sinful humanity. He wasn't afraid to get close. He wasn't afraid to move into the neighborhood. He wasn't afraid to touch. And that's the God that we serve. And as we go through the book of John, we're going to learn all kinds of things about what God is like. But from the very beginning, the very first point that we learn in John, the very first thing we learn about God is that God came down and dwelt among us. He's the God who comes to us, not the God who demands that we figure out a way to get to him. And here's the final move. Well, I guess it's the penultimate move, but it's the final move on this side of heaven, and that's this. The presence of God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, met with Moses on the mountain, was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. The word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. But then... But then the scriptures say this. They say this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, listen to this, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God, that, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. And this is the move of the presence of God, that it's gone from the tabernacle to the temple to dwelling among us to right now what God says, that when you put your faith and your trust and your belief in God, God comes to live in you. 
that you become the home for God's presence, that God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in your life and in your heart, leads you, he directs you, he guides you, he dwells in you. And that is the story of God's presence with God's people. So if you're in here this morning and maybe you've never taken the time, you're in proximity to God. I would say even by being in here this morning, you're in proximity to God, but proximity doesn't equal relationship. You have a choice to welcome him into your life. You have a choice to welcome him into your heart. And maybe this would be the morning you would do that. But if you're in here this morning and you've been following God for a long time and you say, I already made that choice, I've already welcomed him into my life and my heart, then I would say this morning the word for you is are you living your life as God has modeled it for us? Do you move into the neighborhood? Do you incarnate God's truth to the people around you? Are you willing to move close to people who are far from God so that they might see God in you just as God came down and dwelt among us? Would you pray with me as we close out the service? And I'll ask the musicians if you want to join me. And if you're here this morning, I just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Nothing... uh, Nothing mystical about it, nothing tricky about it or anything like that. Here's what I'm doing. I just want to give you a little bit of sacred space in your week and in your day for just you and God. Just want to give you a little sacred space between right now between you and God because one day it will be just you and God. One day this world is over. One day our time here is done and it'll be just you and God. And so in this moment, in this time, I want you to take some time right where you're sitting, right where you're at, to just spend some time, some sacred space between you and God. And I ask you this question, God moved into the neighborhood, but have you allowed him to move into your heart? Have you welcomed him into your heart and into your life? And maybe you've never done that, but this morning you want to do that for the first time. And this morning you want to say, I want to welcome God into my heart and my life. I want to not only know that he exists, I want to know him and be in relationship with him. I want to have him as the Lord of my life. I want to have him as the one who leads my life. I want to put my faith, my trust, and my belief in him. And by that, as John said, become a child of God. And if you want to do that this morning, it's not hard God hasn't made it hard. He's done all the hard work. He's come down to be with us. And if you want to do that this morning, I just want to remember you. I just want to pray for you as I close. I'm not going to ask you to uh, come up. I'm not going to ask you to leave your seat. I'm just going to pray for you. And I'm just going to ask you right now, if that's you, if that's you in this moment and you want to do that, I'm just going to ask you to slip up your hand just so I know. And I want to pray for you right now. Just slip up your hand where you're at. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Anyone else here today? And you say, I want, I want that relationship with God. I want that. I want God not only to have moved into the neighborhood, but to move into my heart. Lift your hand up and say, God, that's me. I want that today. Thank you. If you've raised your hand, as I said, it's not hard. God has done the hard work. 
but he does require you to accept his offer and his invitation. And so it's belief in your heart. It's putting your faith and trust in him. And you can do it in your own seat, in your own words, right where you're at. And you can pray as I pray. You can talk to God. He hears your prayers just as he hears mine. And you can, in your own words, where you're at, say, God, today I want to completely and fully put my faith, my trust, and my belief in you as my God. I want to follow you. God, I ask that you would forgive those things within me that have previously been against your plan, your will for my life, that you would wash me clean of those sins and that from this day and this moment forward that I would live my life for you. I want you to take up residence in my life, in my heart, and I want to live my life from this day forward for you. Lord, I pray for the men and women who raised their hand that you would now do what you said you would do. Because in your word you said, if there are men and women who will draw close to you, that you will draw close to them. That you said that if someone believes that you will take up residence and come and live within them. And I pray that men and women will hold your spirit. For those of you in this room who are followers of God and you've already invited God in your life, I just ask you as we close out and respond to God's word. Would you just ask God to show you this? Where you can follow His example of moving into the world, of being an example of who God is and what He's like in a world that is asking, what is God like? He's put you there to point them to Jesus and to show them exactly what God is like. Lord, would you help us as a church to do that in this community right here in Belmont where there are a lot of people who are really close to this building and really far from God. Would you help us to point to Jesus and to show this world who you are because the word became flesh we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E.org, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.